Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, I'm going to tell you about my first rapid response call ever and why I was hooked for life on rapid response nursing. So it's day one of orientation, and only 10 minutes into our shift, the pager goes off. When we arrived, I saw a pale, diaphoretic, 50-ish-year-old woman in the bed moaning. Now, at this point in my career, I had had eight years in as an ER nurse and about three as a cardiac ICU nurse, And though I was new to the rapid response role, I could spot a sick patient from across the room. And when I see a pale, diaphoretic patient, it's an immediate activation of the sympathetic nervous system for me. And happy bubbly Sarah instantly transforms into this is serious Sarah. The primary nurse told us that the patient had a partial bowel resection the day prior. At shift change, she went in to introduce herself to the patient and found the patient disoriented and breathing rapidly and tachycardic, so she called the rapid response team. The nurse said, this is my first time caring for this patient, so I don't really know her baseline, but the nurse from the previous shift reported that she had trouble getting her pain under control and that she developed shoulder pain, which she gave morphine for, and that the patient had been sleeping ever since. I approached the patient and felt her radio pulse as I introduced myself. It was rapid and thready, so I asked the team to grab the crash cart, at least to put on the monitor so I could see her rhythm. The patient was very lethargic and didn't really respond to me aside from moaning. Without even counting her respirations, I could see she was taking rapid, shallow breaths. The primary nurse was unable to get a blood pressure on the automatic cuff, so rather than continuing to recycle the automatic BP cuff over and over without getting any reading, my colleague started taking a manual blood pressure. Even though ATLS guidelines say that a palpable radial pulse indicates a systolic blood pressure of at least 80, I've definitely cared for patients with palpable radials and systolics in the 60s and 70s, so I wanted to know how low of a pressure we're dealing with here. My first thought was that she could have lost a lot of blood from surgery or that she was hemorrhaging from somewhere, either internally or externally. So I pulled back the covers to assess her abdomen and surgical incision. Externally, the dressing was intact, and I didn't see any signs of bleeding on the sheet or gown. And when I went to assess her abdomen, it was hard. Like a person with a six-pack flexing their rock-solid abs, but she was lacking the six-pack part. And and I remembered learning in nursing school about a quote-unquote board-like abdomen from peritonitis. And while I wouldn't have used the word bored to describe this belly, it was definitely firmer than I would have expected. So I told them to get the surgeon on the phone so I could talk to him. By this time, we had a full set of vital signs. Heart rate, 142. Respiratory rate, 36. Blood pressure, 82 over 40. Pulse ox, 92%. We threw on a non-rare breather and I started a second IV. Then someone brought me the phone with the surgeon on the other end. So I start my S-bar. Hey doc, this is Sarah, the rapid response nurse. I'm with your patient who's about a day and a half post-op after a bowel resection. She's tachycardic in the 140s, hypotensive at 82 systolic, and minimally responsive. 
I don't see any external bleeding, but her belly is very firm. And my gut says she's perfed her intestine. Mm, no pun intended. I would love if you could either order us a stat CT to take a look or just take her back to the OR. She's very unstable. He said, I'm ordering a stat CT and I'll be right there. So we start packing her up for CAT scan and the surgeon showed up just a few minutes later. We loaded her with some stat antibiotics and a couple liters of fluids while the surgeon performed his assessment. We got her blood pressure up to the 90s and her heart rate down to the 1 teens and rolled to CAT scan. From CT, we ended up going directly to the OR. She did, in fact, have a leak in the pipes at the anastomosis site where the surgeon was able to prepare. She had a long recovery, but she ended up walking out of the hospital. Yes! What an amazing first call. I was reminded once again what an important role the nurse plays in the patient's care. Our assessment skills and our advocacy can literally be life or death to our patients. Now, let's chat about the primary nurse's role in all of this. She did an excellent job identifying that this patient was tachycardic, tachypnic, and that her level of consciousness was very concerning. She didn't have to know what was wrong to recognize that the patient needed immediate intervention. Strong work. One thing to note is that this patient had been tachycardic in the 110 to 120 range for the bulk of the prior shift. And the respiratory rate was documented as 16 for all three sets of vitals on the previous shift which I question. I can't tell you how often this happens. Friends, respiratory rate is an important vital sign and often one of the first indicators that your patient's in trouble, especially in a patient with an altered level of consciousness. It can tell us so much. So can we please stop writing 16 or 18 for every patient and actually count respirations? Not only can we get an accurate rate by physically watching the chest rise and fall, but we can also see the patient's work of breathing. Are they taking big old gasps or tiny shallow breaths? Are they working hard and using their accessory muscles to get those breaths in? Is there a pattern to their breathing or something that can point towards a metabolic issue or a neuro injury? So much information that the patient is trying to tell us about their condition through their respirations. Let's not ignore it. Okay, I'm stepping down from my soapbox now. Let's talk about the abdominal assessment for post-surgical patients and the pathophysiology of peritonitis. Remember that we always auscultate before we palpate. You can expect the patient's bowel sounds to be hypoactive for the first 24 hours or so after surgery. Some pain is to be expected around the surgical incision with palpation, but the abdomen should be pretty soft and non-tender otherwise. What would cause a rigid, firm or board-like abdomen? Well, like in the case with this patient, when the bowel contents, aka poopy, leak out of the intestine, fecal matter is very irritating to the peritoneum and causes inflammation throughout the abdomen. The body recognizes the infection and the whole septic inflammatory cascade of awfulness begins. Blood vessels vasodilate. The blood excuse me, the body sends in the macrophages to try and annihilate the infection, along with a lot of fluid to help flush things out. The blood vessels become more permeable and fluid shifts from the vascular space to the interstitial space. And as fluid shifts and inflammation sets in, the abdomen becomes firmer and firmer. Additionally, the vasodilation paired with fluid third spacing results in hypotension. Because the abdominal cavity is so highly vascular, the infection hits the bloodstream quickly and these patients go septic fast. So what was with the shoulder pain? 
Well, the diaphragm is innervated with the phrenic nerve. So when the peritonitis is so severe that it irritates the diaphragm, this can result in referred pain to the shoulder. This patient had the classic presentation of peritonitis secondary to gastrointestinal perforation. What are our takeaways from this patient's condition? First, the tachycardia hypotension combo should make you think sepsis, especially when paired with tachypnea and acute mental status change. Next, peritonitis is a life-threatening condition and can turn the corner to septic shock rather quickly. In addition to antibiotics, these patients need fluid resuscitation and usually an open laparotomy to repair the source of the leak and rinse out the abdominal cavity. And finally, go with your gut. Even if you don't know what's wrong with your patient, if your gut says something's wrong, that alone is reason enough to call for backup. Don't waste time trying to find an explanation for every alteration from the patient's baseline because sometimes it's just not clear at first. Many times I show up to the rapid response call and I don't know what's wrong with the patient either. But together with the primary nurse and the provider and often some diagnostic labs or imaging, we eventually figure it out. So activate your rapid response team when you're concerned for your patient. That's what they're there for. Because when a patient's crashing, it's all hands on deck to save a life. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsermpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page as well as the podcast website rapidresponserm.com.